What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. A little bit of housekeeping. We have a fantastic episode coming for you in the new year. Uh, For those of you who are on the Facebook group, you will have seen that I have been sent a book um, by a very famous historian called uh, Brad Meltzer. Some of you may have seen uh, some of his work on the History Channel. Um, He's got other books out. He will actually be joining us on the show to uh, talk about his new book. So for those of you who are interested in that, that will be a fantastic episode. I'm really looking forward to that. That will be in, in the new year. This week, however, we'll get on with the story. We are talking about what I would say should be one of the most famous men in British history. But I would almost guarantee that the majority of people have never heard of this man. And at the end of this story, you will probably wonder why. And I have no idea why he is not as famous as he probably should be. This week, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about Adrian Carton de Viet, uh, a Belgium soldier. He was from Belgium. Um, and, yeah, his story... Pretty much, he was nicknamed the Unkillable Soldier. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, by the end of this episode, you will know why he was called the Unkillable Soldier. But Adrian was born in Brussels, Belgium on May the 5th, 1880. He was born into a very respectable family. His father was a lawyer. And his mother, uh, we don't know a huge amount about her. She was Irish, and and for all intents and purposes at the time, she was just a a general housewife. He was quintessentially Belgium. Now, you've got to remember at this point, Belgium hadn't been around for very long. Um, And there was a rumour going round between all of his friends that he was the love child of King Leopold II, the man we covered a few episodes ago. Obviously, this probably wasn't the case, but it just goes to show how uh, 
how much of a, a Belgium he he actually was. I don't know if that sounds right. It sounds right if you say how much of an Englishman he was, but I don't know if there's a word for a man from Belgium. So if we have any Belgian listeners, um, just let me know. Is there is there a Belgian man or a, a Belginium? I don't know. Someone will tell me. But yeah, that's how uh, that's how Belgium he was. Adrian's mother died when he was just six years old, and his father moved the family to Cairo in Egypt. He later remarried, and his stepmother decided that it would probably be a good idea if the kids got a pretty good education. And at the time, and probably still now, um, the British schools were top of the list. So he was actually sent to a Catholic boarding school in England called the Oratory, which is in Birmingham. At 19 years old in 1899, Adrian was attending, I think it's Baloy, Balol College in Oxford. He was at Oxford University. Um, and he wasn't happy. He had his mind set on something else. And at this point in his life, he could quite easily have got himself a law degree from Oxford gone into his father's law business and been set up for the rest of his life had a very good job um, and that would have been that would have been it he'd had a you know he'd had a good life um but it wasn't enough he decided that that wasn't him that wasn't the life he wanted and he wanted to be a war hero and he got his first opportunity during the Boer War now, the Boer War started on the 11th of October, 1899. This is the second Boer War, um, and that was between the British Empire and the the Boers, or the Orange Free State, um, and this was in South Africa. He's quoted to say at this point in his life that he knew he wanted to be a soldier, that war was in his blood, and he decided at that moment that he would fight for the British Empire. And if the British Empire didn't want him, he'd go and fight for the Boers. He didn't care. He just wanted to fight. That was his attitude. And turns out the the British, British did want him. Um, he, being a foreign student, he was able to fake his identity, um, fake his age, because he was too young to conscript into the army. But they didn't know. And they took him on anyway. And he was sent out to South Africa. Now, during this time, he was on patrol. And he was walking around uh, an area where there were a few, a very few uh, commandos from the Boer region. And he was shot twice, once in the groin and once in the stomach. So he's been shot twice now at this point. When he got back to camp, he was asked if there was a lot of Boers around and his response was simply, no, but the few that were there were very good shots. Whilst he was in the hospital, his real identity was found. They found out he was underage, and he wasn't actually allowed to join the army. He was sent back to England, where his father was not very pleased. He believed he was studying for a law degree in Oxford, and he wasn't. He was out on the front line in South Africa fighting a war. Uh, not only that, fighting a war for a country that he's not even from. Nonetheless, he had a obviously heated discussion with his father, and his father agreed that if he wanted to have a military career, then he should be able to pursue that. 
two years later, in 1901, he rejoined the army and was deployed back to South Africa. He joined a cavalry regiment and was promoted to the position of corporal. This lasted 24 hours because he decided that he would threaten to attack a sergeant and he was then demoted back down to just private or foot soldier. He bought, we believe, we don't know whether he was promoted or bought, the rank of lieutenant or second lieutenant in this case um this sounds a bit strange now but back in sort of the the early centuries you could become a military officer just purely because you had money you didn't have to be you didn't have to be a war hero uh, you didn't have to be an experienced soldier you just kind of had to have money and and Adrian Deviat was certainly not short of cash so we're not sure whether he was promoted because of you know his his ability um or whether he was you know whether he bought it but nonetheless he he became an officer in the British army now at the end of the Boer war in 1902 he'd pretty much seen zero action in that that year and he wasn't very happy about that you know he was uh yeah, he, he was a man itching for a fight, and he didn't have a fight. So when he returned back to England, he decided to re-enlist and go to British Somaliland. Uh, this was, at the time, Britain was dealing with a man called Mohammed bin Abdullah, uh, who was known as the Mad Mullah. Um, he was... Well, to be fair, I don't, I don't know a huge amount about it. Um, it's something I will research, but uh, as far as I'm aware, they were a guerrilla type of faction that was fighting the British Empire um, and trying to overthrow the British government in Somaliland, um, which kind of happened everywhere in the British Empire. <laughs> you know, there was always a faction of people that didn't want us there. Unfortunately, he wasn't even sent there. Although that's where he wanted to go, he wasn't sent there. They actually sent him to a place called Mutra in India. Um, not a place at war, just that's where he was sent. You know, obviously you don't get a choice in the army as to where you're sent. You you just get sent there. Um, so unfortunately, he was not sent where he wanted to go. He was sent to India. And he did not... You know, he, there was no war there. There was no fighting. Um, he came up with a hobby. It wasn't he didn't invent the hobby, but he he started doing a hobby, um, which is called pig sticking, uh, which sounds really weird. But essentially, you're on horseback, you chase a pig round a field, and you stick it with pig, uh, stick it with sticks. You just jab sticks into it until it dies. Um, that's pretty much the gist of of that job or that that hobby. Unfortunately for Adrian, during one of his pig chasing experiences, he fell off his horse and his horse fell on him. When the horse fell on him, it broke his ankle and it broke three of his ribs at the same time. So it's just another injury. Although this one isn't war related, it's just another injury to add to this man's woes. Adrian was relishing war. He wanted war. In fact. 
there was a time where he was shouting at one of his servants. Um, his servant was obviously not listening. He started throwing sticks at, and stones at the servant. And as soon as the servant was out of range of him throwing things at him, he shot him in the butt. So, yeah, he just he just wanted a fight. Um, he just wanted to, to fight with someone. He wanted that that war obviously he didn't get away with this he was uh he was sent to prison um for for a short time for shooting a servant you know even though they're servants just you're still not allowed to do that so he did get sent away for a little bit uh, but he didn't get demoted so he stayed a second lieutenant he left india and in 1904 he returned to south africa he was there for a few years pretty much just keeping the peace there was no war going on um he was just there as a general soldier in the area um he spent his time working on physical fitness um and apparently he was that strong at one point that he could rip a pack of playing cards in half um that's quite impressive in 1907 he did his pledge of allegiance to the king and denounced his Belgian citizenship to become a British citizen fighting for the crown. In 1908, he returned to England and spent a lot of his time before the First World War traveling around Europe. He went mainly to Austria and Hungary, where he met his first wife. Now, her name, bear with me, was... Frederique Maria Caroline Henriette Rosa Sabina Francisca Fuga von Babenhausen. That's that is genuinely her her name. She was an aristocrat from Austria, and that strengthened his ties to that country. A tie that would probably cause a few problems in just a few years. But in 1914, he finally got his wish: war but not the war he wanted. He was sent just before the start of the First World War. He got his wish and he was sent to British Somaliland and he was sent to fight the Mad Mullah. He got there and realised that all war had broken out in Europe and he felt like he was playing in a village cricket game instead of the test match. Um... For those of you in America, that's like playing a high school game of football compared to the Super Bowl. Um, yeah, that's that's how he felt. Devaya was part of the Somalian Camel Corps. It's basically the uh, cavalry, but on camels. And they were told to patrol a particular area where they believed there were some dervishes. Now... Him being him, decided to attack them head-on. They were in a defensive position, and he got shot three times in the face. Once in the left ear, once in the left eye, and another part ricocheted off him and hit the same eye. So, he's now been shot five times, he's had three broken ribs and a broken ankle, and... He's only in his 30s. And yeah, this is uh, this is one of the reasons why he was the unkillable soldier. He took this opportunity, as I'm sure most people wouldn't, uh, and he got sent back to England purely on the basis that he wanted to go and fight in Europe. 
Most people would probably try and avoid that, but no, that's what he wanted to do. His, uh, when he was asked by his superiors what he thought of the battle in Somaliland, he said it was all good fun. Um, this was a man who'd been shot three times in the face and said it was good fun. Uh, he was very strange when it comes to, to his assessment of war. Nonetheless, he returned to England and was told he could go out and fight in France, but he would need to wear a glass eye. This was mainly because the British army didn't want the Germans thinking that we were reduced to sending out one-eyed officers. He agreed to this, had an eye fitted, um, but apparently this eye was so uncomfortable that on his way to the front line, he just tossed it out the window. Um, and he wore an eye patch like a pirate and he wore that eye patch for the rest of his life it was his most probably recognizable feature was his eye patch in 1915 february 1915 to be precise he was sent to the front line he was part of the royal irish dragoon guards the fourth regiment and they were a cavalry unit he took part in the second battle of Ypres. Now, this is a battlefield that I have actually attended myself. Um, it's it's shocking uh, if you go there even now, sort of well over a hundred years later. Um, the craters that this left in the ground is is eerie. Um, but it was a big battle, and, and at one point, his Irish dragoon guards were heading over the top and they were attacking the German front line where a barrage of artillery rained down on them. De Viet was shot in the hand. And when I say shot in the hand, he was shot to the point that he had two fingers left that were dangling by a piece of skin. Um, that was it. That's all he had left of his hand. When he had the field doctor come over to him, the doctor was not sure what to do, was very reluctant to amputate, so Devire pulled his own fingers off. Uh, he actually later said that he felt no pain when he did that. I'm not really sure. Like, it kind of turned your stomach a little bit, if you can just imagine. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, he does, which you don't really want to imagine, but just two dangling fingers and he just pulled them off. Um... Yeah, so I'm assuming on that instance, shot being shot in the hand, unless he was shot by um, a, a very, very powerful bullet, he would have been shot more than once um, for it to cause the amount of damage that it did. Um, his hand was later amputated at the wrist, 
um, completely. Um, so obviously past the wrist bone. So he's now got uh, one eye and one hand. At this point, he could quite easily have gone home and spent the rest of the war at home. But he didn't. He went back to the front line and carried on fighting. He took part in the Battle of the Somme, where his soldiers actually said that the only thing he used to fight with were grenades, uh, which he would pull the grenade pin out with his teeth and just throw it with his one good hand. That was it. He didn't carry a rifle. He carried a walking stick and a handful of grenades. Um, didn't carry a rifle because he couldn't use it. Didn't carry a pistol because he said that he would probably use it on his own men. He distinguished himself at the Battle of La Boiselle in France, where three units had their commanders killed. Him being the ranking officer took control of all three units. Now, up and down the Western Front, these three units were not able to communicate with each other. He was the one man that had the ability to communicate between all three. And instead of using a Chinese whisper system and passing it along the trenches, no, 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 Adrian Deviat decided to run across the front line from unit to unit and give his orders himself. The whole time being shot at by the Germans, the whole time being on no man's land, on his own, running from battalion to battalion. For this, he was awarded the Victoria Cross because the British held the line at La Boiselle um, thanks to his, basically his leadership. He fought at the Battle of Devil's Wood after this, or Deville's Wood, but it was nicknamed Devil's Wood, um, where he was shot by a machine gun at the back of the head. Now, this actually removed the back of his head. Not to not to a, a, a you know a, a life-threatening point, but he'd lost all the skin on the back of his head, um, and his skull was exposed. But he simply just dressed it up, went back out to the front line. He was then shot in subsequent battles in the hip, the ear, and the leg again. Still, every time, he went back out and fought on the front line. He miraculously survived the First World War. Um, he then, at the end of the war, which is the period that most historians will label the interwar years, now, this is very wrong. It was not interwar. There were a lot of conflicts going on in Europe at this time, and just not on a major scale. He was actually assigned to Poland, which was a newly formed country, and he was assigned there as a political and um, military advisor. Sorry. Whilst he was there, Poland declared war, or was had war declared on them, with Russia, Lithuania, Ukraine, uh, and a couple other of the Bolshevik states. And he was there in a military capacity, because where there's military, where there's war, you'll find Adrian de Vyat. But he was fully invested into the Polish military. In fact, he made friends in the hierarchy and he operated a gun smuggling ring through Hungary to get artillery and weapons to the Polish army. In 1919, he survived two 
that's right, two plane crashes. Uh, and, yeah, just, I mean, the list goes on. We're not even finished with the amount of times this guy had problems. Um, in 1920, he was at the front of a battle. He was on a train going through uh, a, a, sort of like a cavalry charge. Um, and he took out his revolver and he was firing at the Cossacks uh, on his own when he fell out of a moving train. He then miraculously managed to get himself back onto the train and carry on fighting. Uh, in 1921, when the conflict had finished, uh, he decided to stay in Poland. He liked the country so much, he was so happy there, um, and he, he believed he'd found his home, and that's where he wanted to stay. So he stayed in Poland from 1921. So at this point, you would assume, okay, he's had a good life. In 1923, he actually retires from the army, and you're thinking, that's got to be it. You know, he's fought in the first world war he's fought in a few wars before that he's fought in a war after that surely this man's military career is over he's retired he's a major general so he's not just a, a nobody he's not just a lieutenant anymore he's he's worked his way up the ranks he's got the victoria cross which is the highest distinguished honor you can get in the british army he he's one of the you know one of the most famous soldiers britain's ever had Surely, surely this is the end of his career. So you would think. Now we all know that in 1939, the Germans advanced into Poland and England declared war on Germany. He was English, or an English citizen, living in Poland. He had to flee. There was no way he could stay there. He left through Romania and got back to England. When he got back to England, he re-enlisted in the army. He was given the rank of Lieutenant General and, believe it or not, being nearly 60 years old, having one eye and one hand, was sent to a landing party of Anglo-French soldiers in Norway. And this was to stop the German invasion of Norway. On his way into Norway, he was on a seaplane which crash-landed in a Norwegian fjord. When it landed, or crash-landed, bearing in mind how cold these fjords are, um, it was being attacked by a German uh, aircraft. Now, a lot of soldiers at this point got into a rubber dinghy, went to shore, and were, were attacked. They were shot by this aircraft. He didn't. He waited in the freezing cold water inside the aircraft that had been shot down. Because obviously seaplanes, they do float. And waited for the German plane to just simply run out of ammunition and fly off. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and were in a bit of a pickle, His, him and his unit. Some of them had been, obviously, died in the plane crash. Some had died in the attacks from the German fighter planes above. And the Germans knew it. They knew they were there. They encircled them and they were ready to finish everybody. Luckily for Carton de Viet and his band of merry men, the Royal Navy was just around the corner. And the Royal Navy came round and ferried them all back to England. In 1941, he was sent on a secret mission to Yugoslavia by Winston Churchill himself. 
Unfortunately, he never got there. His plane took a nosedive just outside the coast of Malta and crashed into the sea. Devaya, 61 years old, got out of the wreckage, managed to grab another soldier who was injured and swim to shore. Bearing in mind he's got one arm or one hand, one eye, he's 61 years old. He's been in his fourth plane crash now and he swum to shore saving the life of another soldier i do apologize i just realized i've said the coast of malta well after they left malta the crash happened and it was just off the coast of libya where they had the crash so he he landed on the shores of libya where he was arrested because this was italian territory and at this point in the war we were fighting the italians which people do forget that when they think about the first uh, the second world war that uh, we were fighting the Italians as well, but we were indeed. Um, he was arrested. He was transferred to a high-security prison in the castle of Vincigliata. Now, this was for basically for officers. It was an officer's prison rather than, you know, a normal prison. Um, I'm going to assume, although I don't know, but the conditions in these were probably slightly better than a normal POW camp, but... It, I suppose, in, in all fairness, they could be worse because these officers knew more secrets. Gone were the days of chivalry where the knights were looked after more than the foot soldiers. He was a member of at least five escape attempts. Okay, uh, One of these attempts was to dig a 60-foot tunnel under the castle walls. A job not easy for a man in his 60s and certainly not easy for a man who has an amputee uh, or or with one hand. Um, but in March 1943, this tunnel was completed and, and they managed to escape. A handful of prisoners managed to get out uh, and they hid in the Italian countryside dressed as peasants or farmers. Believe it or not, they were recaptured. A 60-year-old man with an eye patch, one hand, and can't speak a word of Italian, kind of stood out like a sore thumb. Luckily, he didn't have to stay in prison for too long. In 1943, Benito Mussolini was, uh, well, he was murdered. Uh, he was killed by his people, um, and he was allowed to be released. At this point, Italy was negotiating peace terms with the Allies, um, and they needed a mediary an intermediary to go through and speak for both parts someone who had lived with the italians someone who could you know have a bit of sway with the british politics and that man was carton de viat they decided that because he was uh, disabled and because he was pretty much ready for release anyway from the castle that he would be the man to do it obviously he needed to be suited and booted before he left so they took him out of the castle to get him some new clothes now this is a man who is used to the british suits the way the british do do everything and decided that whilst he was out and getting a brand new suit paid for by the italian government that an italian tailor would make him look like a gigolo um obviously something that now is quite funny um back then i can't imagine the italians took much uh 
much humour in that, but uh, nonetheless, that is what he said um, because he was just that sort of a character. He just didn't really care what people thought about him. He was sent back to England uh, in 1943, and you would think that this would be the end, and it kind of was the end of his military career. He was then appointed by Winston Churchill to be an advisor in China, and he became personal advisor to Chiang Kai-shek, who was the Chinese communist leader or the Chinese nationalist leader at the time. He built up quite a relationship with Chiang Kai-shek, but he didn't like Chairman Mao. Not many people did, to be fair, but he didn't like communism. He was a staunch anti-communist. He really, really hated it. And when he was asked questions of, you know, why haven't you gone here or why haven't you gone there, his answer was simply... Well, I don't like communism, so I don't want to see your operations. I don't really care what you do. Um, I'm here to advise this man, and I don't care about the rest of it. So that's pretty much what he did. Um, other than that, he was there until 1947, and he was in another plane crash, which he survived. When he left China, he travelled back to England and on his way, he went to meet a friend in Burma. When he got there, he was walking down a flight of stairs, which he tripped, fell, and broke two of his vertebrae on his back. Now, this was dangerous for a man in his, his mid-60s, mid to late 60s, and he was operated on, fixed, and the doctor took quite a bit of an advantage of him and removed, I don't know, probably half a ton of shrapnel from his body you know it wasn't anywhere near that amount but they they definitely removed quite a bit of shrapnel from his body he then retired in ireland his mum was irish he bought a home in ireland um, and he lived out the rest of his days there he was one of the greatest british soldiers of all time and he had over 30 medals including the victoria cross Sir Adrian Carton de Viat, as he was now known, died on the 5th of June 1963 at the age of 83 years old. He was one of the most distinguished British soldiers of all time, and one that we have pretty much forgotten. We don't talk about him. He's not very well known, and let's be honest... When you talk about the unkillable soldier, a man who survived five plane crashes was shot on more than ten occasions for in three different wars. I mean, yeah, we understand now, I hope, why he got the nickname that he did. But I hope you've all enjoyed this episode and let me know what you think. Join the Facebook group. I say it every week, but everyone gets needs to get on that Facebook group. Um, it's a lot, lot better. You can get, uh, um, we, we put games up and things like that, but more important than that, we have started doing a few live shows. Um, we are going to look at doing a few more of those in the future. Um, and the best way to view those is through Facebook. So we will obviously put the shows out onto the podcast apps as well but if you can get the opportunity to watch us live you do get to see my ugly mug while we're recording so that might be a hint for some of you that might be a a little feather in your cap might be a good idea Uh, if not then you know carry on the way you are but if you do want to support the show 
we do really really appreciate everyone who can support the show the best way to support this show if you can't do it through patreon so a lot of people do join the patreon which is five dollars a month but if you can't do it through that is to share this show with your friends and family and to leave me a review they are the two main ways that we can grow this show which is reviews and the sharing with friends and family so if this episode has made you think god that's an amazing episode fantastic i'd love you know my mum would really like this or me best friend share it with them show people this episode it's a 35 36 minute episode get it out there for people to to listen to because that's how i'm going to grow this show and you know we've been going nearly two years now and i want to see next year really push into bigger figures so all you guys who come back every week to listen to me you guys are the ones that are going to push this show forward so thank you very much and we shall see you next week bye bye What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.